The sermon text for today is Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 through 30. As we're going through the book of Genesis, we have seen how Jacob deceived his father, pretending to be his older brother, and obtained the blessing, the blessing of the firstborn, uh, really uh, all the blessing that uh, was desired, that was saved up for him. Isaac then blessed Jacob again, uh, the second time with full knowledge of what he was doing, and he sent Jacob away. Jacob was both running away from his brother, who now wanted to kill him, and he obeyed his parents by traveling to Haran to stay with Laban, his mother's brother, and to seek a wife from among his daughters. So let's go ahead and read what happens next, Genesis 29, verses 1 through 30. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? He said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. 
So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's blessing upon his word. Dear Father, we thank you for your care for us, for your providence, and for your special providence towards your church, uh, towards us. We pray that you would uh, direct us by your word to direct the teaching of it, that it might be true, and the hearing of it, that it might be profitable. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we're here in the worship of God, uh, God's words and his presence is right in front of you. Uh, It's uh, easier to think of God and to be aware of his presence. But when you go out from here, it doesn't take very long for it to be easy to have that sense drift from your minds. As you live in our society, it's usually secular by default, and it's harder to live as before the face of of God, uh, to, be, to live in a way that's conscious, conscious of that reality, uh, that God is with you. It's easier to forget his all-encompassing providence and his all-encompassing word. But God is still with you, wherever you go. Now, in this passage that we just read, God is not mentioned. Jacob is far from home. He's far from the promised land. But is he far from God? No, he's not far from God. God does not directly intervene by a miracle or by a vision like last time. Last time we saw the vision, right? Or we heard about the vision that Jacob saw. God manifested his presence to Jacob and he saw it right there in front of him. But he had promised to be with Jacob wherever he went the vision of the Lord and the latter in the previous chapter sets the context for this one. God's promises are the means by which Jacob will later look back at his life and interpret it, that God was with him and had been his shepherd all his life long. There are also the means by which we should interpret his life. We should look at his life in light of God's promises. What follows then is not far from God. It's not out of his control but it's in fact worked out by God according to his purpose. I've said this before, but this is somewhat of a a theme that we find through Genesis, that the sins of men, which are still the sins of men, 
are sinful and man is responsible, yet do not overcome the purposes of God. But he will uh, control the events, ordain the events, and work his own purposes out through the events of this life. Now, in this passage, we find that Jacob is diligent, he's helpful, he's blessed in his journey, he makes it, but he's also dramatically deceived, he's providentially disciplined, and he is instructed by seeing the evil of his own deception. God providentially orchestrates events to fulfill his purposes and his promises to his people, to be with them and to keep them. Uh, And he was doing so here in the life of Jacob. So do not grow weary or faint-hearted, but rather endure under the care of God and under his discipline, as Jacob would learn to do. The whole passage is about how God was with Jacob and can be divided into two parts. First, God providentially blesses Jacob's journey, guiding him to Laban's house. And second, God providentially disciplines Jacob through Laban's deception and the resulting marriages. So first, let's look at the first 20 verses. God providentially blesses Jacob's journey, guiding him to Laban's house. It begins here by saying that Jacob went on his journey. But literally, or more woodenly, it says he lifted up his feet. Uh, Apparently, it's the only place in Scripture it uses that expression. It's not the normal expression for setting out on his journey. He lifted up his feet. Uh, He sets out in confidence after seeing this vision of heaven opened and the angels descending on the ladder and God speaking to him. Now he lifts up his feet and he sets out on his journey with confidence given by the promises of God. No longer is he uh, the, the passive one, uh, mama's boy, who is staying around the tents. Uh, he is setting out on a journey to a place he has never been, and he is energetic. He is uh, strong. He is confident. So having these promises of God, strengthen your weak knees, as the author of Hebrews says. Lift up your feet to run the race with endurance, to fulfill your calling in life by faith. Now, he had a particular calling at this point, a particular journey he was supposed to set out on. You have your own calling, the place in which you serve God. But having heard the promises of God, having been at Bethel, lift up your feet, as Jacob did. Jacob then came upon a well with three flocks and their shepherds. Uh, He learned that his cousin Rachel was coming with his uncle's flock of sheep. Uh, Interestingly, Rachel means Uh, ewe, you know, like a a female sheep. Uh, Here she is a shepherdess uh, as well with sheep. Uh, There might be foreshadowing of how Jacob's flock of children will later increase, um, as well as his flocks and herds. Whatever the case, though, he is there. He's at the well. That's kind of a familiar situation, right? He comes to a well. In this case, though, there's sheep there, and the shepherds, and Rachel is arriving. And in what he does, he acts like his mother, Rebecca. He's not so much like Abraham's servant, but he's more on the other side, like Rebecca, his mother. What did his mother do at the well? She generously uh, provided water for the camels of, of the stranger. Well, here, he waters the animals of not only these shepherds, but also uh, his cousin Rachel and the sheep she was watching. Apparently, the stone was difficult to move. It took multiple shepherds. The shepherds did it together, usually, to move this stone. 
They normally waited, in fact, until they were all there before moving it, either because they all needed to be there to move the rock or simply so they didn't have to move it multiple times, that it could be just one and done. But Jacob moves it by himself, showing an eagerness to help his uncle's flocks and daughter. And before they could even show him hospitality, he helps them. Perhaps also the difficulty of the stone might foreshadow the difficulty he would have in obtaining Rachel, uh, but rather a difficulty he would overcome. So, like Jacob, be ready to be helpful to others, to be helpful to strangers like his mother was, how much more to relatives, especially when God blesses your efforts as he had blessed his effort to arrive at a particular spot where these people knew Laban, the very man he was searching for, the very well that Rachel had arrived at, uh, that he responds by improving the situation that God had given him. Now, Jacob was moved at having found his uncle and his cousin. God had guided him to the right place. There was kissing, there was weeping, there was talking, there's running to and fro, uh, even though they had never seen each other. Jacob had never seen them, they had never seen Jacob, but they are enthusiastic and overwhelmed at meeting their relatives in a place, for Jacob, a foreign land. In the midst of foreigners and strange places and uncertain journeys, he had found his kin, his bone and flesh. It's kind of similar to the way Adam described Eve, right? Bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh. Here it's referring to their, their kinship, uh, their uh, close connection by uh, family and by common descent. It's a joy when God blesses the labor of our hands. It's also a blessing from God to have extended family. We're bound to others by ties of kinship, and nature itself teaches us to assist our own relatives as our flesh and blood. Paul would say to fail to do so is to be worse than an unbeliever. It's this bond between family and, and relatives and kin is particularly close. It's the same principle that underlies our responsibility to all mankind, because we are all children of Adam and Eve. So he's moved here at having found his uncle and cousin and embraces them and is welcomed by them as his own bone and flesh. Now then Jacob lived with Laban. He doesn't remain idle. He goes to work for Laban. Uh, that seems to be implied by what J- Laban then asks him. You know, you're my kinsman. Should you serve me for nothing? Uh, tell me, what should your wages be? He doesn't want to take advantage of Jacob. Well, that's what it looks like at least. Uh, we'll find out that very thing actually happens on later. But for now, he, he says, well, what, what should your wages be? What should, what should you work for? Laban was also giving a Jacob an opportunity to ask for his daughter's hand in marriage. But we can learn from Jacob to be diligent wherever God has called you, to seek to do good to others, to not take advantage of others, especially those who are helping you. But Jacob has to serve for Rachel. Why does he have to work for Rachel to get married? Well, if you remember when Abraham sent his servant to get a wife for Isaac, he sent him with lots and lots of gifts loaded up on camels, uh, lots of gifts to give to both Rebecca and to her family. This was that engagement present, sometimes what's called a bride price, although it might not be the best 
translation. But the, the gift that was customarily, customarily given to uh, the bride and her family at a marriage. But did Jacob have that? No. Jacob doesn't seem to have had much of anything. And he arrives there without anything to show for himself. And so instead, he works. And the best we, and, and not only that, but Jacob volunteers the price. It's not Laban who says, work seven years for Rachel. Jacob says, I will work seven years uh, for Rachel. As best we can tell, this was a higher price than normal. Uh, best we can tell from how much labor was usually uh, valued and, and paid and what was a typical bride price. It's all very imperfect science, but it seems like a very high price that he was prepared to pay. Uh, seven years labor, but it did not seem high for Jacob. He was enthusiastic. Rachel was beautiful. Jacob loved her, and it didn't seem long for him. He labored seven years, and it seemed but a few days because of the love that he had for Rachel. What had Rebecca told Jacob? Stay there for a few days. Well, it felt like a few days, uh, even though it was seven years at this point before they were married. Notice how love takes away the drudgery from work. As Matthew Henry notes, love makes long and hard services short and easy. This is true in marriage, as husbands and wives that love one another can overcome difficulties that would throw others uh, for, uh, throw them for a loop. But when they love one another, they can overcome difficulties and, and work, and it seems light. It's also the same for our service to God, that as we love God, our work for God will seem easy and light and not a burden. So let us foster a love, whether it's for a spouse in marriage uh, or fostering a love for our God, that we might serve him with a cheerful heart. Now Jacob found his mother's family and a woman to be his wife from among Laban's daughters. Was all that an accident? Was that merely a coincidence? What are the chances? But no, it's not an accident, not a mere accident. We should view these events in light of the promises of the previous chapter. God said, I would be with you. God had also said, I'll multiply you, which implies a wife, right? God was blessing his journey, had brought him to the very place where he was. He hadn't been robbed by robbers or killed on the way. He had arrived there safely, and God was fulfilling those promises. He was providing for Jacob, providing a place for him to stay so he wasn't killed by his brother, that he was providing a wife for Jacob, that he might be fruitful and multiply. God's providence was at work, and all these little things of daily life, not just the big miracles that we don't know how to explain. God providentially orchestrates events to fulfill his promises to his people, to be with them and to keep them. As Matthew Henry says, if when we are at a loss, we meet seasonably with those who can direct us, if we meet with a disaster and those are at hand who will help us, we must not say that it was by chance so that fortune therein favored us, but that it was by providence and that God therein favored us. It is the work of God through the events of life. But then things take a turn for the worse, right? All these things seem to be going merrily along. Uh, it's almost like a romance uh, here as, as Jacob is in love with Rachel. But then we meet with verses 21 through 30. And we find that God also providentially disciplines Jacob through Laban's deception and the resulting marriages. 
the time came for the wedding. Laban prepared the feast. The wedding itself would take place on that first night, and then the feast would continue for seven days. We find the same practice in Judges, uh, in in, uh, Samson's wedding. Uh, Laban also gave a a maid to his daughter as a dowry uh, to, to be hers. There was this wedding, but on that night, Laban switched his daughters. He gave Leah, the firstborn daughter, to Jacob instead of Rachel. He was supposed to give Rachel, he gave Leah instead. Jacob did not discover this until the next morning. Behold, it was Leah. Leah had probably been veiled. It was probably dark. They were sisters after all. They probably looked something similar. Laban had deceived Jacob, tricking him into marrying Leah. Now, Laban meant this for evil, and his deeds were evil. But God meant it for good, to instruct Jacob. God was not responsible for sin, not the author of sin, but he did mean it for good. He was at work in these events, working them out for his own purposes. It's not some random deception. It's a deception that that perfectly matches that of Jacob. It matched the deception Jacob had played on his father. Jacob had deceived his father by taking the place of his brother, the firstborn. And so likewise, Laban deceives him by switching his firstborn daughter and his youngest daughter. Of course, Laban's excuse is flimsy. Oh, it's not our custom to give the younger daughter away before the older daughter. Well, you might have brought that up in the seven years I was working, right? Uh, It's a flimsy and weak excuse, and Laban and Jacob can see that. He can see the evil of that deception, how indignant he grows at being tricked like that, and his indignation condemns himself, his own deeds. As his deception of his father Isaac had caused strife and trouble in Isaac's household, so this deception of Laban's would cause strife and trouble in Jacob's household. Now Laban said he would give Rachel to Jacob after the week was over for seven more years of work. So he would wait seven more days, would get Rachel, and then work that off in the next seven years to come. Not only in that way would Laban marry off both his daughters, but he would get seven more years of labor out of Jacob. He turned Jacob's exuberant offer of seven years against Jacob, doubling it. Jacob then submitted to this arrangement. Now, Laban got away with all this deception and this deceptive dealing since he had uh, the power. Uh, Jacob was not without blame for entering into these marriages, marriage with two women at the same time. You know, he could have been a martyr and and resisted entering into these uh, polygamous arrangement. But remember the context in mind here. Jacob was vulnerable away from home. His own kinsman, Laban, had turned against him. If he had sought to break, to back out of his engagements to Leah or Rachel, Laban might easily have resorted to violence. We know that he later intended to do so when Jacob later tried to leave. It is in my power to do you harm, he said. Only God's vision stopped him. So Laban took advantage of Jacob, manipulated things in his own favor, and ensnared Jacob in this polygamous arrangement and in seven more years of servitude. Now, not only is polygamy wrong, marrying, you know, more than one person at the same time, 
That's contrary to the creation ordinance, which we saw at the beginning of this very book. But Leviticus 18.18, as I mentioned in our Sunday school lesson, condemns, if it doesn't condemn polygamy in general, it, it then condemns ex- exactly this type of situation, that one should not marry uh, a, a woman and her sister at the same time, uh, that that was explicitly forbidden in the law. Jacob's marriages were not a model for your practice, but they turn out to be a warning against polygamy. The strife and the trouble that resulted would be a further discipline for Jacob, similar to the strife in David's household after his sin with Bathsheba. They were not cast off from God. It was actually for their good that God would correct them and teach them. God providentially gave Jacob over to this sin to further humble him, to convict him of his sin, to teach him more and more to trust not in himself, but in the Lord. Now, Jacob received Rachel at the end of Leah's wedding festivities, but he would still be bound then to serve seven more years. And these would be a greater bondage. There's no comment here about how these go by so quickly because of the love that he had for Rachel. Uh, No, it just says that he had to work these seven years. Uh, He had been tricked into serving these seven years, and he probably was aware of that for all these seven years, very, uh, very vividly, that he was having to serve them because of the trickery of Laban. Jacob had no Sabbath. Uh, Hebrew slaves, how long were they supposed to work in the law? They were supposed to work six years and be released in the seventh. Jacob worked seven years, twice over, back to back. As Jacob was reduced to servitude by Laban, so Jacob's descendants would later be reduced by the craftiness of Pharaoh to servitude in the land of Egypt. Later, the Israelites would learn to reflect on these experiences of this hardship, especially that in Egypt, and sing in Psalm 66, verses 10 through 12, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. And they saw the work of God's providence in bringing them into these situations for their testing and their trying. Of course, they also knew that God would eventually deliver them and had brought them to the promised land. Now, not all hardships are chastisements for particular sins. Um, sometimes they're, they're tests, they're challenges to, to, to train you. Uh, but in Jacob's case, these hardships were a chastisement that matched his own deception. Being ensnared in an extra marriage, the pain that would result from that, seven more years of labor, these were all painful consequences for his sin. And not just that, though, they also were instructive. They weren't just mere pain. They were to teach him that he would learn. They confronted Jacob with his own actions and demonstrated his weakness. Who would deliver him from Laban? Who would bring him back to the promised land? Jacob would learn to turn from his sin to trust the Lord's promises for his deliverance. So the Lord disciplines his children. He does not let them remain immature. He does not just let them do whatever they want and let them go. God will bless the weakest believer who truly believes, even with a little mustard seed of faith. But he also will work with that person. He will work with you for the rest of your life. 
It will not let you stay there. He will work with you through training, through discipline, through instruction, that you might persevere and be mature in the faith. That, too, is part of God being with you to keep you. That, too, is part of Him being your shepherd. It doesn't just mean He kills the wolves. It also means He keeps you in the path with His rod and His staff, which are a comfort to you. God providentially orchestrates events to fulfill His promises to His people, to be with them and to keep them. And that includes challenges and hardship. So do not despise the discipline of the Lord. Do not grow weary when you are reproved by Him. What causes a person to lose the advantage of a lesson? If a parent is trying to teach a child a lesson, or a teacher teaching a student in a a context, uh, what causes them to lose? Well, pride would cause them to lose the lesson, to not learn from it. Bitterness at being corrected and resentment, right? Pride and bitterness cause a person to lose the benefit of discipline. And they do so at the discipline of the Lord, too. For corrected, and we resent it. We grow bitter. How, why is God treating me this way? We're not going to learn the right lesson. A wise person does not get offended at correction and training, especially when it comes from the hand of the Lord. So humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Set your mind on learning the lesson that he has before you, using his word, of course, to interpret it. Repent of your sins and strive after holiness. Is discipline pleasant? No. No. But look to its fruit. Look to the maturity and the peaceful fruit of righteousness that results from it. That is how you learn to value it. Now, as we come to the conclusion here, I don't know if you're thinking it, but you might wonder, where is Jesus? Right? Jesus is in Scripture. Uh, We haven't talked about him much yet. Well, what right do you have to be called children of God? What right do you have for all things to work together for your good? They don't work together for good for everyone. What right do you have to the discipline of the Lord? How can you expect God to be with you and to keep you and to not forsake you despite your sins? Apart from Christ, we are cast off given over to a corrupt mind, our own sins, alienated from God, hating others and being hated by one another, with no one to deliver us. Christ is that ladder that brings heaven to earth, so that God is with us wherever you go. The Father sent His only begotten Son to save sinners by His death and resurrection. The Son was not ashamed to call you His brothers. He brings us into God's household and under the blessing of his discipline and training by faith. It is because of Christ that God works all things together for your good. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And that is only a good thing for you if you are in covenant with God through Jesus Christ. Jacob received these promises through Christ. Have you? Then pick up your feet, press on with faith, and call upon God as your Father in both joys and in trials. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your presence and promises to be with us and to keep us. We pray that you would 
fulfill these promises. We ask that you would be with us to keep us, that you would be our shepherd to lead us astray from our sins, to train us and correct us when needed, that we might bear fruits of holiness and righteousness. We pray that you would help us to grow mature in the faith, that we might be stable and steadfast and a help to others. We pray, Father, that you would deliver us from the craftiness of man, that you would deliver us from the world and the flesh and the devil, and that you would bring us forth to a place of abundance unto your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.